You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Monday morning, the 11th of February. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11 a.m. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The Minister for Health is coming under fire from all angles. We'll hear shortly why Sinn Féin says it has no confidence in Simon Harris. We'll also speak to Fianna Fáil and hear why they won't lend their support to that motion. Fianna Fáil is unhappy nonetheless and the government will undoubtedly be made aware of its discontent. The National Children's Hospital, as you know, will cost some €450 million Euro more than was originally budgeted. Last August, the Minister knew that there would be the potential for the hospital coming in hundreds of millions of euro over budget. Last September, he told Fianna Fáil's Barry Cowan in the Dáil that the project was on target. Did he mislead the Dáil? Well, tomorrow he'll give an apology of sorts. The government will then uh, announce which other projects will be delayed as a result of this overrun. Let's talk about this with our political correspondent, Sean Defoe, because said this is all at the beginning of a week which will see nurses strike for three days. It's going to be an interesting week for the future of the health minister, potentially even the future of the government. So that motion has literally come just in the last kind of hour and a half, Sinn Féin saying that they don't have any confidence in Simon Harris. Their release says that they believe that he misled the doll, he misled the public, he misled his government colleagues by not declaring that he was aware of potential overruns of the National Children's Hospital. This all, of course, stems from last week when we learned that in August, health officials knew that there may be, and Simon Harris knew, there may be a potential overrun at the National Children's Hospital of almost 400 euro as a result of claims from the contractor and also overruns. Now, Minister Harris didn't bring that to his government colleagues' attention until November when he had the final figure. He says that was the right thing to do. The Taoiseach has defended him on that. But Fianna Fáil, a little unhappy because they believe they were misled during the confidence of supply talks. They should have known about it then, that they should have known about it during the budget. And Sinn Féin said the same, so they put down that motion. But it can't actually be debated this week because Sinn Féin doesn't have any time in the Dáil this week. So the earliest it could come into the Dáil is actually next Wednesday, the February the 20th. Fianna Fáil saying at the moment that they, they won't back that. We're hurt to hear some clarity in the doll tomorrow then from Simon Harris. He's making an mm. apology of sorts, as mm. I, I think you rightly put it. He's not going to fully apologise because he doesn't believe he overly did it wrong, but he says he should have made some clarifying statements in answers to parliamentary questions to the effect that he knew that there was work ongoing to assess the final cost 
rather than that the final cost has been agreed. So a little bit of technicality in here, but as we know on technicality, mm-hmm. can often swing government. Well, that's a the technical bit that's missing, if you like, is uh, that Simon Harris won't say that he, he misled the doll, and there's a, a clear view amongst politicians that that was uh, the case. But Fianna Fáil aren't going to push this. They won't support that motion of no confidence, because I think they're right in saying uh, that if uh, the Minister was to lose a vote of that sort, there is the chance that it could spark a general election. But they may be putting pressure on government otherwise. They, that's certainly what they were going to try to do. When I was talking to people in Fianna Fáil on Friday when this first emerged and they were trying to plan the way forward, they knew they couldn't be the ones to wield the knife, if you like. They couldn't be the ones to go in mm. and try and hack this government down because then confidence in supply is dead and we go into a general election of possibly the worst ever time in terms of Brexit. Stephen Donnelly has been saying consistently over the weekend it would be the biggest gift that the Jacob Rees-Mogg and the Boris Johnson and mm. the Brexiteers of the world could have to not have an Irish government in place right now and have that solidarity. But they, yeah, at the moment they're saying they're not going to back this motion of no confidence. A lot of them over the weekend were trying to consider, you know, how can we get Harris out without it being us or without having to break confidence supply? They were going to try and bring some pressure to bear on the Taoiseach to perhaps force him to resign. At the moment, it looks as though events have now overtaken them and it's hard to see how that will happen. But it's also a really difficult place for Fianna Fáil to be in now. So if they go in on Wednesday week to this motion, I doubt very many of them will want to get up and say that they have faith in Simon Harris to continue as health minister. Mm. So what you're probably likely to see is Fianna Fáil, people who are out in the media over the next couple of days, will just focus all their attacks on Sinn Féin. And they would say it's irresponsible to try and collapse the government around the time of Brexit without trying explicitly to back Simon Harris. Mm. So it's a tricky and complicated position for them. They would have the power to get rid of him. They don't want to enforce it left to collapse the government. But they did so slightly more subtly in the case of Francis Fitzgerald. And uh, we've uh, also seen Dennis Nocton resign since the formation of uh, this government. Uh, so this type of thing can happen without these types of motions. And I suppose the next question is, will Minister Harris survive until that vote is put to the doll? But that's the other issue. I mean, you have to, he does have to, I suppose, be considering his future. I'm sure Leo Varadkar would have been talking to him. He backed him on Friday. But they now have to consider, you know, what is best. I mean, Frances Gerald, did remember, resigned herself in the end. Fianna mm. Gale were ready to back her to the hilt, but she decided to go because it would have meant the government collapsing at the time and an uncertain election. Dennis Nocton was a little bit different. The T-shirt explicitly told him he's going to have to resign and then he did it somewhat out of the blue. There wasn't even really a clamour for his head at the time, just lots of questions over the broadband issue. So it's an interesting position for them to be in. I'm not 100% sure that Simon Harris can negotiate his way out this week, but he has been given a lifeline by Brexit in normal times. Absolutely, Phoenix Fall would be gung-ho. They would be calling for his head and they would be asking to get him out. Now there has to be a lot more subtlety to it. There has to be, if they are bringing pressure to bear, it might be a phone call between Michal Martin and Leo Bracker saying, look, you know, I'm not sure I can back this guy, I can support him. And then you wonder, does the Taoiseach stick by his minister? I mean, there's no particular love lost between him and Harris from what I understand of their personal relationship. So you might not have a huge amount of backers around the cabinet table if push came to shove. It's very, very interesting. Mm. Lots of nuance to it. At the moment, it looks like he may survive because of Brexit. But, I mean, a week is a long time in politics, as we know by now. Yeah, well, even at that, though, uh, you've got to put it into the context of it's a little bit too late in the sense uh, that this hospital has overrun by €450 million. It's going to cost €1.7 billion. It may run up to €2 billion. There's a a lot of things that will have to give. We'll be hearing a list of uh, the projects uh, that will be cancelled or delayed tomorrow in line with uh, the 
Minister's uh, announcement. Uh, there is the position that Fianna Fáil is in, but even if Simon Harris was to go or be pushed, uh, you still have all of that cost and the people who were involved in it, because there's officials in two government departments, in the Department of Public Expenditure as well as the Department of Health, who have questions that will go unanswered. But all of this is in the context, then, of a week of chaos. We have three days of strike action this week from members of the INMO and the PNA, two more days from the general nurses next week and uh, three days again from the psychiatric nurses. Uh, we're seeing crises after crises. Yeah, and if those three strike days do go fully ahead, I think then the minister's position becomes very, very difficult because that brings all the, the political pressure that comes to bear with any sort of a strike. It'll be interesting to see what the Labour court says this morning to see if they can intervene and maybe provide some scope for the strike to be at least delayed or called off this week. That might save his head a little bit. But you also have to wonder when, I mean, in politics, it's always people looking for someone to blame. It's looking for a head. They want some sort of accountability. I mean, really, is it Simon Harris's fault here that it overrun? Probably not. You could argue it was the officials. You could argue it was, it was the contractor. We simply don't know whose fault it was. And that's the investigation that is ongoing at the moment. And by removing him, do you remove any chance of actually clawing back any of the cost of this? If there mm. was a general election, and I'm sure Fianna Fáil would be arguing this as well, if there was a general election nothing's going to be done on this. There's no hope of uh, of going and actually clawing back some of that money. It's something PwC are investigating as to whether it can be done. So it's interesting to see whether in this case it will actually be appropriate or should he be made to stay in the position and try and fix it and try and reclaw some of that money for the taxpayer. Lots of nuance to it, quite complicated and uh, not 100% sure. And I don't think anyone who's seen a fall completely agrees what the right thing to do is here. We'll see some of them, of course, wanting to vote against uh, the government and wanting to collapse this but that spectre of Brexit just looms omnipresent, especially with, I think it's 46 days today left mm. until the UK is meant to leave and more negotiations ongoing. So whether or not he'll survive the week, I'm not sure if those nursing yeah. strikes go ahead. His position very, very difficult. You wonder how, how much uh, the cancelled projects uh, will feed into public thinking as well, Sean, uh, because when people are told uh, that what they had been promised is not going to transpire. In other words, uh, promises will be broken because of this overrun and that they shouldn't have been promised in the first place. And the reason they were promised it is because the Minister, Simon Harris, didn't relay the overrun on, run on the Children's Hospital uh, to government. Uh, well, that could have an impact, couldn't it? Yeah, you'd wonder what the knock-on was there. I mean, had he told Pascal Donoghue in August, come here, there's likely to be a bit of an overrun we may need to start set some money, more money aside for health this year. There's some thinking around Leinster House. He didn't do that because he was already looking for the largest budget health has ever got without any of that in play. That you know, that's pure conjecture at the moment, but hard to know. But I mean, it depends. The Taoiseach has said that none of these projects will be cancelled. They would some of them be delayed. Some of them only by a matter of weeks, which could be true. And if it is only a matter of weeks then I think people will be fairly understanding. You'd almost expect that anyway with capital constructions. But if it's issues like, you know, MRI scanners in the Midlands, if it's issues like the cath lab down in Waterford, where you can legitimately say that lives have been lost because of the unavailability of that extra lab, if people happen to travel to Cork or Dublin uh, from that region, and I'm sure there's plenty within your own, the own counties you cover as well that need uh, upgrades and infrastructure upgrades. It's all across the health system. If we're going to see significant delays because of a hospital that has so much contention about it and so much argument as to whether it's even in the right place, 
then there's a lot of trouble going to bear and it's a very unfortunate week, I think, for Simon Harris uh, to have to bring that to Cabinet. I wonder, might we see that scooted out another week and see if he can survive it? Our political correspondent, Sean Defoe, was speaking to me before we came on air today. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, as you've been hearing, uh, Simon Harris is uh, to apologise to the Dáil tomorrow because of uh, the overrun in uh, the cost of uh, the National Children's Hospital and not making it clear to the government and indeed uh, to Fianna Fáil as well as Dáil Éireann that there was uh, the potential for this to happen. It will be an apology of sorts, however, and the Minister will not apologise for misleading the Dáil. That's what Sinn Féin wants of the Minister and says that this apology is nothing more than political cover for Fianna Fáil. Let's hear why. Louise O'Reilly is Sinn Féin's spokesperson on health. Good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining Good us morning, here on the programme. Good morning, Michael. Good morning to your listeners. You believe Simon Harris misled the doll, do you? Well, I think it's very clear. Actually, uh, Fianna Fáil agree with me on this. Uh, Fianna Fáil spokespersons have been out to say that he did mislead the doll. But we also need to look at the context in which this was happening. Okay, so aside from the convoluted structure that he put in place in terms of governance or complete lack thereof to build what is effectively one of the biggest capital investments this state will ever engage in. So put that to one side. The timing for this is what's crucial because all of this was happening. The information that the minister had and did not keep, did not share with his cabinet colleagues, didn't share with the senior Fianna Fáil negotiating team who were in and out of government buildings uh, on a, a daily basis, getting updates and briefings and negotiating and having an input into the budget. He didn't share it with them. This was at a crucial time. So we're talking about six weeks before the budget was published on the 9th of October. Six weeks in advance of that, the Minister was made aware of a significant cost overrun, which no doubt does have budget implications. And we found that uh, that he kept that information to himself and that he was waiting on more clarity and waiting on different mm-hmm. figures. I mean, the, the Minister for Finance has said uh, on the public record that even he believes it would have been helpful had the minister uh, had Minister Harris actually picked up the phone or let him or his department know in some way, shape or form about this um, massive overrun. And he didn't. He kept that information to himself. And for that reason, uh, I, I believe that the minister... Uh, his position has become untenable. He's not He's not capable of managing this project. We have seen that. But we also, just to, to, to add to this, mm. in response to a parliamentary question on the 18th of September, when he had sight uh, of a cost overrun of at least €191 million. Euros. Mm. So that, at the very least, he knew it was going to be €191 million. Euros, Potentially which, €391 million. Exactly. Mm. So he, but he knew for definite yeah. it was going to be 191, mm. and there was some dispute over the over the 200 million. So he he knew for absolute definite that the overrun was going to be huge. Yeah. He issued a response to a parliamentary question in which he said that everything was on track and on budget. Uh, and uh, you know, I mean, that that's what he actually said was it. that it was in line with the expected expenditure profile. Uh, now, yes. maybe and the expected expenditure profile is what the government voted, or yeah. the cabinet, sorry. You said it was uh, a back. huge overrun. Maybe the minister doesn't see €191 million Euro as a huge overrun. Maybe that's in line in the minister's mind with well, the expected expenditure yeah, profile. Yeah, and I have to say to you, right, at that stage, the figures that were contained within the, the information and the memos that were sent mm. to him point to an overrun that was closer to €400 million. We know that. Mm. Um, and if that, in the minister's mind, is not a problem, 
well, then I believe that we have an even bigger problem, Michael. I mean, we're talking about a huge investment, but we're also talking about a project that under Leo Varadkar, uh, we were told, would cost €630 million. Euros. And he was very clear about that. He said that was all in satellites plus that, €630 million. Mm. We then see the figure escalate to €980 million, which is the, the figure that was approved by Cabinet uh, in April. And then we see uh, that the figure is now £1.7 billion. And we have, according to uh, evidence given to the Public Accounts Committee last week, unlikely to come in, the, now the figure is unlikely to come in under £2 billion. So if the Minister has a casual or a cavalier attitude to €400 million Euros of taxpayers' money, I think that there underlines the problem that we have. Because it's not going to be lost on your listeners how hard they have to work and how much money they pay in tax to ensure that that money is available for this hospital. We all want to see the hospital built, Michael. Your listeners want to see that hospital built. They are, if they have to come to Dublin, they're going Mm. to Temple Street. They will tell you what the conditions in Temple Street are like. We absolutely have to see the hospital built. But is the minister the right person to be in charge of such a massive project? I think his actions have shown us that he isn't. And I believe well, what did, what, that a half-hearted apology mm. is not going to solve this. What should he have done? Should he have acted like a messenger boy? But it's not its not acting like a messenger boy. I would never use language like that. The Minister for Finance has said himself it would have been helpful had that information been shared with him. So clearly the Minister for Finance had what did you, what, that what, information. What did you think of Simon Harris's, I presume you saw his interview with Miriam O'Callaghan last week. Uh, I think a lot of people found it to be somewhat uh, insulting to their intelligence and uh, somewhat self-centred in the way the Minister was implying that he, he was far too important to be running with concerns to other people and that he needed to oversee this himself and it wasn't until he had established exactly beyond any shadow of a doubt how much the overrun was going to be that he would share that information with uh, the government despite the fact that they were about to set the budget for this year and despite the fact uh, that there were ongoing negotiations with Fianna Fáil on a confidence and supply agreement. And I think, you know, I, I, I would agree with you. I spoke to people in the aftermath of that interview and they, it made them more angry. They didn't get any answers. What they simply got was arrogance from the minister saying, I'm in charge of this project and I'm, I'm the best person to run it. Of course he's not. You know, you have, to look at the, you have to look at the facts. And bear in mind also, we're going to be treated to an apology next week. Another apology. He's already had to come into the doll and apologise on at least two separate occasions for the failings of him and his department. So this is going to be another apology to add to the list of apologies. And Fianna Fáil are okay with that? I find that very hard to believe, Michael. I find it very hard Mm. to believe that there's not more people in Fianna Fáil that don't agree with Sean Fleming, a very senior uh, person within the Fianna Fáil party who came out on Friday and said he believes that the minister should resign. We know that Fianna Fáil backbenchers are not happy. They're going to know that their constituents are not happy. We know that two ministers have been removed uh, from government during the lifetime of this administration. It didn't cause a general election. Fianna Fáil know well that it won't cause a general election. I don't know what they're afraid of. Maybe they're afraid of admitting that they had the wool pulled over their eyes by this minister during the negotiations. Maybe they're they're afraid of political accountability. I don't know what it is that they're afraid of, but they have time to reflect and uh, to come around to the position 
that the uh, that the opposition, the real effective opposition in the Dáil has, which is that this minister is not the right person to oversee this project and not the right person to oversee the uh, the largest spending department within uh, within government. OK, well, it, it seems to me that Fianna Fáil agrees that Simon Harris isn't the right person to be the Minister for Health or to oversee that spending. I was speaking to... Sean Fleming uh, this morning uh, and uh, we'll hear a recording of uh, that interview, uh, the Fianna Fáil Chair of the Public Accounts Committee a little bit later on. But uh, whilst he said the Minister should resign on Friday, he's saying now that Fianna Fáil will not support this motion and the reason is is that they don't want to force a general election. Uh, and whilst you may be right in your arguments, it would appear as though Fianna Fáil is going to try and bring about that situation in a different way, perhaps in the same way that Frances Fitzgerald came forward and resigned herself. There's a very straightforward way to ensure that this minister is not left in charge of this project. And that's Without forcing an election? Of course it won't force an election. Sure, we have seen two ministers replaced uh, in government mm. and it didn't force an election. So but it's we entirely did, normal and natural. But we, we, we didn't there, see Fianna Fáil vote against the minister and so they can't under the confidence and supply agreement. Well, Fianna Fáil have to themselves reflect on this position because at the moment we have a minister that I don't believe they have confidence in, that Sinn Féin certainly does not have confidence in. So we have that, that situation yeah. and we have an opportunity to do something about it. So they have an opportunity to support the minister or support our calls that the minister resigns. Well, what if they achieve it in the next 10 days, before your motion goes to the House? If the minister resigns in the next mm. 10 days, and if somehow Fianna Fáil orchestrate that. Well, um, regardless I, of how it's orchestrated. <laughs> Fianna Fáil have said that uh, at this stage they don't want to destabilise anything. They're far too close to the government, I believe. I think they should reflect on what their constituents want. I think they should reflect on what's best, not just for the Children's Hospital Project, but for the Department of Health and for the single biggest spending ministry within the state. Mm. And I think if they do, if they reflect on that and if they are honest, they will see that the best way to do this is to support the Sinn Féin motion. I don't believe that ruling out support for the Sinn Féin motion, hiding behind some pretense of an election when all of the available evidence tells us that there will not be a general election. What there will be, though, is a change and what there will be is a clear message to the government. So the government are listening. They will, they will hear what Fianna Fáil have to say. Fianna Fáil will either say we are a party of opposition, mm. we hold the government to account, or we are the government's biggest supporters and we will protect this minister. Okay, so I think but we don't want a general here, election we'll now, want, do we? We'll want to hear where Fianna Fáil stand on this. We don't, I, don't believe that, I don't believe that there has to be a general election. No, but election do we, we don't party. want one, do we? I mean, it would be disastrous, 46 days out from Brexit. 46 days to go to Brexit. Yeah. I dearly want to uh, the opportunity to uh, to get rid of this government. I don't have confidence in mm. this government. But what we are facing now is the opportunity to uh, send... Get a head on a plate. It's not a head It, it is a head on a plate. Because, no, well, not. what about all the civil servants who are involved in all of this? Uh, where's the accountability there? And apart from anything else, you turn the whole thing upside down, you remain with the same government in place tomorrow that was in place today. And it is the same government who can't deliver a health service. We've uh, all out strike this week. Indeed, and uh, we know that the nurses are waiting um, to see if the Labour Court will, will call them back in for a hearing. We also know that paramedics are going to be on strike by the end of the week. We had GPs outside the Dáil protesting last Wednesday. We have the ongoing scandal of cervical check. 
we have uh, the, the overrun for the children's hospital. And, you know, I mean, this minister is failing to get to grips with any of them. If Fianna Fáil are happy to support that, well, I think that's a very, very sad day for Fianna Fáil and a very sad reflection on them as a party that supposedly is in opposition. Parties of opposition hold the government to account. Fianna Fáil should act like the opposition instead of trying to act like the government. And I think not just mm. me, but people out there are heartily sick of Fianna Fáil trying to be both, trying to be in opposition and government at the same time. They need to make a decision. They are either on the side of the people who are appalled at this catastrophic overspend or they, they are on the side of this Fine Gael government. OK, but what would be achieved by getting ahead on a, a place? It's not about getting ahead on a place. It's about the leadership that this... The is it about Fianna Fáil or is it about the leadership? This is about the leadership that this minister has provided. I do not have confidence in this minister. I don't believe that the majority of people in Dáil Éireann have confidence in this minister. And Sinn Féin are giving them an opportunity to express that view. This project is far too important. The health service is far too important for this to be allowed to go on. And now we know that by his actions, the minister did, I believe, mislead the Dáil. But he also withheld important information, not just from the Minister for Finance, not just from Fianna Fáil, but from uh, ordinary taxpayers. That information was kept to himself and we now see that the overrun and the cost of this hospital could potentially tip €2 billion. Euros. Mm. Do you know, it was very, very dark when my alarm was annoying me to get out of bed this morning and I was thinking of exactly that. We leave it there for the moment though and thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. That's Louise O'Reilly, Sinn Féin's spokesperson on health. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Minister for Planning, Housing and Local Government, Owen Murphy, will be in Bellingham Castle in uh, the next hour to launch what is known as the M1 Corridor Project. This is uh, the brainchild of Paddy Malone and a chance to showcase business in the region and also the region itself as a place to invest and indeed what it has to offer to potential investors. Uh, let's talk to Paddy. Malone, who's PRO of Dundalk Chamber of Commerce, and also Shona McManus, who's the president of uh, the Drogheda Chamber of Commerce. Good morning to you both, and thanks for joining us, Paddy. Uh, this is a, a regional uh, attempt to bring investment to, to the area because the M1 corridor, as it's called, is, is this region which runs from Drogheda tr- through Dundalk up to Newry. Yeah, and it very much is a joint effort by the two chambers, Drogheda and Dundalk to sell this area and to highlight the huge advantages this area has. Some of them late, they're, they're sitting there, it's an area waiting to be developed properly and we need to make government policy aware of, it, aware of what's here. Okay, and the amount of people who are here and available to work here for that matter. Yes, well, that's one of the statistics that we pulled. We did a huge amount of work on research. We all knew that this area was fantastic but we just needed to prove it rather than just simply go in and talk about it vaguely. And 2.3 million people live within an hour's drive of West Street or Clonglassan Street, uh, compared to 2 million in Dublin. So, uh, from O'Connor Street. so in other words, our catchment area is actually bigger than the Dublin catchment area because we include parts of Dublin and parts of Belfast and everything in between. So mm. this area has a huge potential if it, can be ha- if it can be harnessed properly. So you're talking about the most densely populated part of Ireland? Yes, we are talking about the most densely populated part of Ireland. And, that's, and yet, at the same time, we have plenty of space. Uh, rents and everything else are significantly lower than they are in Dublin. You don't face into commuter traffic if you're going to be working in the dark or draw. It's a win-win situation if we can get businesses to 
think about coming into this region. Uh, and what we're doing in reality is the opposite. Rather than businesses coming into the most densely populated part of Ireland, the people who live here are leaving this region to work elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, I, I, there's two things. We have 88,000 people travelling every day down the M1203 into Dublin, two-thirds of whom are actually uh, have at least one degree, if not more. And the other thing about it is I have a, the, the new uh, managing director of Woozy back in Dundalk, Brandon McGrath, he lives in Swords, and he said it gives him some sort of a wide grin every morning when he travels down to Dundalk and looks at all of that traffic backed up, particularly when you're coming off, during, uh, off the Dreamstone connection. Uh, it's an awful waste of time and talent if why can't we put the jobs where the people actually are mm. well I suppose uh, it's a, a matter of matching uh, the skills with the jobs that might be uh, available and whilst 80,000 people might commute every single day and they'd love to be working closer to home uh, are they in themselves something to attract investors to this region yes of course they are I mean as Shona and myself know and Shona is in that business mm. of actually identifying where people should be going uh, of what businesses actually want. We have the talent here. We have seven universities. We have the DKIT within an hour's drive of the region. So we have all the potential that we need. So we, we, we're fine. But you're talking about 80,000 skilled commuters, are you? Yes, we are talking about 80,000 skilled commuters because we've, two, two-thirds of them have got a university degree or more. So we have a huge asset in this region and we need to actually make people aware of it. Too many politicians and too many policymakers in Dublin think that going down the country is either the N4 or the N7. It is a lot more than that, and we need to get that message loud across. All right. Uh, Shona McManus, uh, the president of the Chamber of Commerce in Drogheda, on the line, as I say, and as we've been hearing, uh, this is a, a joint effort and uh, would see the establishment or the perception, if you like, of a region that runs from Drogheda to Newry through Dundalk. Uh, but isn't that in the opposite direction in terms of traditional thinking in Drogheda, where people would have always been focused on Dublin? Good morning, Michael. Um, For some, yes. Um, I know myself on a day-to-day basis, my business is within the recruitment industry, and over the last, we set up a multi-site ourselves in the Drogheda area about three and a half years ago. And in the last three and a half years, we have actually interviewed between three and a half and four thousand candidates from the whole M1 corridor between Drogheda and Dundalk. A lot of those people are travelling to Dublin or further afield every day. They're commuting over an hour. Um, It would be, I suppose, in the past, yes, they've had to leave the the area to actually find good work, to find career opportunities that suit them. Um, But most of them who come into us, a high proportion of people who come into us, they actually want jobs closer to home. They want a good work-life balance. They want to spend time with their family um, or in their hobbies. But they also want good career opportunities for themselves. Um, And then the same is for for business owners and for employers. Equally, those people who are in positions of hiring don't want to be commuting all the time either. So it is, I guess, a change, but it's always been a want in the area. You know, so this initiative really, as Paddy has said, is really pulling everything together to really sell all the benefits of our area and to promote the fact that we are business ready, we are investment ready, mm. we want FDI, we want startup, we want multi-sites to set up in our region to actually help with the demand from the huge population that we have. And so people are not doing as much commuting every day. Um, so there is a real demand from people there for that. And we see that day to day in what we're doing in recruitment as well.
All right. Well, we have the airport on our footstep. Uh, we've uh, DKIT, plenty of uh, schools and opportunities for education. Uh, we've a uh, number of hospitals and so on. There's a, a, a lot uh, in terms of how you can sell this region, uh, the M1 motorway and uh, the rail line added to all of that. Uh, but whilst uh, it's one thing to get jobs for the 80,000 people who leave here every day to work elsewhere, is it possible to bring more people into the region from outside or, or where will they live? Uh, is uh, there the accommodation available? Yes, I believe there is. I know also that there's a lot of focus on, on building and developing new property in the area as well. There's multiple sites and multiple housing estates being built right now. Um, and there is a demand for to bring additional skill and talent into the area, um, especially in the high demand areas of the STEM subjects, IT, technology, etc. We have very, very strong skills in those areas. In fact, 46% of the graduates in our M1 catchment area are of STEM subject graduates, uh, which is very, very strong. Um, but in relation to your question, Michael, mm. with regard to the property, I mean, we do. It's there. And it's not just about draw and talk. Um, it's about the whole corridor, all of the villages along it. It's about driving economic development and growth across the whole, whole region. Um, whilst business might be put into, say, areas such as Drotted and Talk and our neighbouring villages, there's huge um, uh, opportunities and, and huge properties available for people uh, to come in and to locate here. It's great, unusual for that matter, to be speaking to both the Chambers of Commerce uh, in the two large towns in Louth uh, in order to speak up the region and to sell it uh, as an attractive place uh, to invest. And that's part of the objective of this M1 corridor project. It's part of the National Development Plan, the 2040 plan. Uh, but Paddy Malone, uh, in more recent times, uh, we've been talking about concerns uh, about Brexit and the border and so on. And the top end of uh, this corridor is in Northern Ireland, Newry, possibly outside of the European Union. How much of uh, an emphasis should be placed on the potential threat that Brexit poses to this plan? There's no doubt that Brexit is a question and a huge problem. And we've actually addressed that issue on the 13th of March uh, when we have our conference with the Newry Chamber in the Caradier Hotel. To, you know, I mean, Brexit is a, a, a matter of fact. We've got other problems in the past, like the currency in 1979 and even partition in 1921. So it's there, and business learns to adapt and business learns how to work with it. The main thing that we would like as business people would be certainty, and hopefully we will get that shortly. Um, the one thing I would say to you is that both Drada and I know talk of Shona, she's confirmed mm-hmm. it to me, both Drada and Nandor, we have seen businesses in Northern Ireland looking at the region to come in to establish themselves for passport purposes. In other words, they need an EU presence. And I've given one example, Almac in Nandor came in talking about maybe 10 people or something like that. So they're now up to 80. So we can win on occasions. So uh, Brexit, like everything else, there will be winners and losers. But as I said to you, this, is, this conference is focused on setting of the broader and broader community as a positive area. And I'd just like to thank Minister Murphy for listening to us when we made, when we made that submission to him way back over two years ago. It was to his credit that he gave us as much time as we could to develop it. 
and he has responded so well to it. Okay, and both of you are speaking to us uh, this morning from Bellingham Castle. Minister Murphy will be there uh, to launch this project at half ten today. Uh, And essentially, it'll map out the reasons why this region is good for investment. Uh, We'll be hearing more about that in the bulletins through the day and indeed later on in the week. Uh, It's going to bring an awful lot of attention, hopefully, to the region. But if investors are looking at the M1 corridor, as you're calling it now, just to conclude, Shona, why would they feel that this is attractive? And by that, I mean, you've put an awful lot of work into this. I know that there's a lot of brochures. There's a very impressive looking website. And a lot of this is mapped out in black and white or in fancy colour, as the case may be for them. It is. And there's some key areas. I mean, we all heard as we were growing up, location, location, location is critical. You know, I remember my parents saying it to me, but this is the case with where we are now in our region. We have a superb location. We have everything around us. We are sitting in the heart of the Eastern Economic Corridor, right between Dublin and Belfast, um, where we have two of the three largest towns in our region, Dundalk and Drogheda being the largest, um, with our neighbours across borders like Newry and Meath. We've got a population, as Paddy alluded to, of 2.3 million within a 60-minute drive. We have a talent um, pool and a workforce that is hugely educated with some of the best STEM skills in the whole of Ireland. Um, we have a startup scene that is highly um, uh, highly reputable, very successful. We've got a track record in industry clusters. For example, we've got an M1 payments corridor, financial services cluster, engineering cluster, food manufacturing cluster, digital technologies. I mean, the list goes on. Yeah. Our connectivity is excellent. We've got three airports on our doorstep, including Dublin, which is only 20 to 30 minutes away from us, depending on where you are, and four deep water ports. We've got excellent road facilities and rail facilities and infrastructure. We've got the fastest broadband speeds in the whole of Ireland. It's three okay. times faster than in Dublin. You sell it well. And both a brilliant lifestyle. <laughs> and I, th- I have a feeling you could talk and talk, but I've run out of time Absolutely. and I have to leave it there. And I actually, I have to let you off the line, both of you, because uh, the launch thank is about uh, to uh, take place. And thank you both for joining us here on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Paddy Malone, who's PRO for Dundalk's Chamber of Commerce and Shona McManus, President of the Chamber in Drogheda. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Maggie McGuire joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have come to us this morning. Good morning to you, Maggie. Good morning, Michael. How are you doing? No, I'm very well. How are you? I'm good, thanks. I'm good. It's Monday morning. Sure, how a good busy we? Monday morning, I hope? A very busy Monday morning, actually. Yeah, we've had a lot of calls and comments into the programme. Um, mostly health-related, really, to be honest mm-hmm. with you. Um, uh, we have some comments left over from Friday show as well, which I'll just bring to you quickly at the start. We had Eamon in contact with us saying that he feels that work on the Children's Hospital should be stopped immediately until a thorough investigation of the spending up until this point has been done. He says that every penny needs to be accounted for before another brick is allowed to be built. OK. And we had Michael as well... Um, on, in touch on the nurses' strike. He says he thinks very highly of the nurses but feels that the only people that they're hurting with the strike action is the poor patients in their care. The government aren't being impacted at all. Um, he says that the nurses choose this job as their vocation and they signed up for the pay agreement so they shouldn't be trying to hold the country to ransom like this. Alright, well it looks as though we're looking at uh, three days of uh, strike action from uh, tomorrow, three rolling days. Uh, it's uh, the most worrying situation and I'm sure 
there'll be a lot of focus on trying to uh, avert that in the next 24 hours, less than 24 hours now is the case. Oh, yeah, maybe. this yeah. is it. Mm-hmm. And, um, mm-hmm. On the same subject, Mary was in contact as well, um, saying that she's heard a lot of, of nurses say on various different outlets, both here mm-hmm. and other media outlets, saying that, you know, they feel that their only option is to emigrate, basically, mm-hmm. once they graduate. And she wants to know, is there not some kind of way that you can, as part of the training here, com- they can be com- um, compelled to commit mm-hmm. to working Put here for two or two? Like a clause kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, a loyalty. Yeah. I don't mm-hmm. know if that's mm-hmm. workable, but that's what she was saying, that maybe they should be compelled to commit to working here for two to three years after mm-hmm. graduating. And then that would ensure that we have a constant pool of, you know, fully mm. qualified nurses to dip into you know when we need to as and when we need to so mm-hmm. that's the proposal she was putting forward I don't know if that's a work on Yeah well I suppose there are people who have asked questions uh, like that uh, of other professions as well a lot of teachers uh, working abroad and uh, you know they're getting good qualifications here and uh, I suppose that's the reason people are, are suggesting uh, that uh, they should do something in return for the education education they've received nurses will always argue that they're very skilled professionals and of course they are but mm. you could out argue, uh, make the counter argument that is, uh, that that's because of uh, the education and training that they've received here. Yeah, I mean, mm. I don't, as I said, I don't know how workable it is. There aren't any other professions where you're compelled to stay in the country where you you trained, mm. you know, so I don't really know if you can work that into a nursing clause either, you know. Exactly, yeah. Um, mm. But uh, John was in contact with us uh, to talk about the general state of chaos in Irish politics, as he puts it. He says that he's been a Fianna Fáil voter for close on 58 years now and that following this current debacle with the health service and the children's hospital, he's says he'll never be voting for them again oh. because he can basically see no difference between them and Fianna Gael. Ah, that's a Sinn Féin supporter. I doubt he's really a Fianna Fáil supporter. He's oh. just ringing up and messing and no. being mischievous. Oh, I don't know about that now. He's yeah. sounded pretty yeah. sincere on the phone. He's saying that he's repeatedly heard them been asked to outline kind of what their di- what the, the difference in stance is between their stance on an issue and Fianna, and Fianna Gael's stance on an issue and he says that um, Fianna Fáil seem to just skirt around the questions without answering anything. So he says that's because they know that they're essentially the same party and they don't want to answer. <laughs> I definitely think that's a Sinn Féin supporter. But we'll hear from Fianna Fáil uh, in the next few minutes and hear what uh, they have to say in relation to some questions uh, that we put to Sean Fleming a little bit earlier on this morning. Let's uh, find out what people think about uh, the cost of uh, the National Children's Hospital yet to be built, talked about since uh, the beginning of uh, the 90s and questions over whether it'll ever be built. And if it is to be built, should it cost 1.7 billion euro? Should it be 450 million, half a billion if you like over the budgeted amount or, or could it run into two billion or more? Marie Kearns has been speaking to these people in Ashburn. I'm actually flabbergasted. I can't understand how in this period of time the minister or government departments you know, haven't been informed about the increase in spending. It's just incomprehensible. Is it justified spending that amount? It's hard to say. I mean, I, I don't have enough information around it. It's a massive amount of money for a hospital. It's supposed to be the most expensive hospital ever built. So if that's the case, there's something wrong. There's been a lot of talk about the National Children's Hospital in recent days and the amount of money. What's your thoughts on that? <laughs> I'd probably better off not getting into that now. I'd never leave you. Um Look, we need to invest in a children's hospital. We really do. But um, somebody needs to be held accountable for the spiralling costs. And Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I think realistically what we probably need to do is we should have had a realistic budget at the start and I think that's typical of our government is we don't put something realistic in at the start and then it spirals and no one is held accountable for it then. And are you surprised that the Minister for Health only knew about it in recent months? (laughs) Um, No. (laughs) The cost of the children's hospital is in the news at the moment. They're saying it could go up to 1.7 billion and even top the 2 billion. We end up going more than that realistically. That's not accounted for any computer in the place uh, or any snag list. Then who's going to actually work in it? You know, at the end of the day, you know, where are they going to get the staff for it? Do you think heads should roll over this? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been a farce from start to finish, and and that lies lies with somebody. Yeah. Well, I mean, if uh, you put it into perspective in relation to the claim that's currently in place in relation to the nurses, I mean, that'd probably adequately pay for that claim in its own right. You know, so you'd have to question how the scale of the increase was was achieved. You know, you'd have to question that. Somebody has to be accountable in relation to overruns of that ex- extent. Uh, well, I suppose public projects can go over budget and uh, we certainly should have systems in place to keep an eye on that. I suppose uh, you can't blame a contractor for trying to get paid as much as he can in some ways. But having said that, it strikes me that, yes, that there isn't great oversight on the whole thing. And It seems surprising that it wasn't flagged earlier. Well, all these things will be surprising and so on and so forth. But essentially, at the end of the day, we should be able to build this nice, you know, it's not rocket science, it's a big project, all right, but, you know, it should be possible to to manage it. That's not proper. There's too much money being spent on that and somebody's answerable to it. Some person along the way, there wasn't enough meetings going on for builders and uh, other contract people. Do you think the minister took his eye off the ball? I'm not sure. I think he's doing the best he can because the different ministers before him had the same idea and they weren't listened to, I think. And uh, now that has us in the mess we're in at the moment. There's a lot of talk about the cost overrun of the National Children's Hospital. Oh. <laughs> What's your thoughts? <laughs> Don't get me started. That, I mean, that's that's just diff- that's just sums it all up, doesn't it? I mean, they're bickering over paying wages and look at all the money that's been lost in... You know, you, they don't even know. It's like a big black hole, you know. It's ridiculous. So that's frustrating. That's more frustrating, you know. Do you think that somebody should be held accountable? 
We do, the government. Yeah, absolutely. I think they need to sort it out for sure. Yeah, yeah. Where are they getting these figures from? I mean, it's like they're pulling them from thin air. Where, where is, where do, you, where do it's? It means nothing to them. It really doesn't. It's, it's, you know, I, I, it doesn't surprise. You're lost for words. Really. I, there are no words. There are no words. It's shocking. All right. Well, plenty of people had plenty to say. I think uh, those uh, people in Ashburn uh, taking time out of their day to share their thoughts with Marie Kearns for us. And many thanks to them for doing that. I was actually just thinking uh, about how Brian Cowan infamously described the Department of Health as Angola uh, and uh, how uh, it's quite possible that Simon Harris was in school when he said that. It's uh, been a very difficult department uh, for almost every single health minister in living memory. Oh, it's kind of the poison chalice, really, mm. isn't it, of cabinet? Nobody really wants it. I would have, well, they say they want it, but would you want it? I don't think I would if I mm. was a, a government minister, I have to be honest. Uh, nobody seems to fare too well on it, I have to say. Well, yeah, there's, there's always been serious questions asked of uh, the Minister for Health. Uh, Simon Harris might want to continue as uh, the Minister for Health, whether he wants it or, or not. The question is, will he continue in office? Well, if Theresa has a way, he won't, because okay. she thinks that he should go. Um, considering the way he's handled this whole debacle with the hospital she's saying it's not hundreds or thousands we're talking about it's millions of euros of taxpayers money and he says she says somebody has to be held accountable um, and you know be punished I suppose for what has happened but then on the same note we'd fill us in contact saying uh, Simon Harris shouldn't be made apologise in the doll. Um why is he the one who's been made the scapegoat for it all whereas the civil servants that are involved in the whole process and why aren't they be held accountable as mm. well so you kind of have you have sympathy and you have a bit of support from and then you know but I mean I think yesterday what happened at his house and at the protest outside his house we've had a lot of calls this morning in relation to that and there is a lot of um, a lot of sympathy for him after what happened yesterday mm. we've been inundated actually with calls Anne was saying she was disgusted um, seeing the protest outside his house yesterday she said she understands there's a lot of public anger um, at the minute over the state of the health services but what purpose was served by essentially holding the family hostage in their own home. She said yeah. nothing, as far as she can see. She's all for protesting and standing up for what you believe in, but she thinks it was unfor- unforgivable to target him in his home like that. Mm. And, yeah. you know, yeah. staying with that... You Young know, baby, three weeks old. This is it, mm. yeah. And Jimmy was saying the same thing. He said those who um, harassed the Harris family in their house should be named in shame by the guards. She, he firmly, again, believes in the right to protest, but no protest holds... Um, gives people the right to hold people hostage in their home. Um, Mary wants to know what kind of a country we're becoming at all if some people decide it's okay to harass and intimidate a young family in the way that the Harrises were targeted yesterday. Yes, there's serious problems in the health sector and yes, Simon Harris is the minister and has questions to answer over it all. But why in God's name involve his wife and young family in any of that? His wife and child are not accountable for anything he does in his role as minister and it's disgusting to see them harassed in that way. Mm, yeah, well, I think there's always questions about holding protests outside of family homes uh, because people other than the person who's being protested against live in those family homes. Uh, in other words, uh, Minister Harris's wife and his three-week-old child, for and that matter. And his neighbours yeah. as well. Mm, she, they're all, yeah. I mean, he lives yeah. in a semi-detached house, like, do you mm. know what I mean? So his neighbours were impacted as much as anybody else. And um, actually, staying with that, Tommy was saying that when he looked at the pictures of the protest outside the minister's house, he said the phrase played the ball, not the man, sprang to mind. Mm-hmm. And he said it saddens him to think that Ireland's turning into a country where this kind of behaviour might be justifiable for some people. It doesn't matter what your job is, everyone's entitled to a private life outside of their work and no one has the right to intrude on that. Yeah, well, I mean, 
I think for as long as I can remember, at least, people have held protests outside family homes uh, and I think they're always objectionable. They've always been objectionable, but we'll probably continue to see people to do that. I don't know if people stop to think uh, about the consequences that it has on other people and uh, that type of thing, uh, but it is a, a, an unfortunate thing when people make that wrong decision to do that, I think. This is it, but I do have more comments, but um, I know time is running mm-hmm. against us, so uh, maybe if we get a chance later on, I'll come back. Okay, more. I'm sure we will, Maggie. Thanks okay. uh, for that, and thanks to everybody who has been in touch. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you, and our telephone number is 1850-715-958. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, Sean Fleming is a Fianna Fáil TD for Leash and also the chair of uh, the Public Accounts Committee, which is a dull committee that uh, takes uh, a look at public spending, spending on behalf of the government. The government has been spending a lot of money, a lot more money, it seems, than it had intended to spend on the National Children's Hospital. €450 million more than was intended to spend on the National Children's Hospital. The Children's Hospital will be the most expensive hospital in the world. It's going to cost at least 1.7 billion euro. That figure may run to 2 billion euro. Earlier this morning, I spoke with John Fleming and I asked him, does he believe that the hospital will ever be built? It will. And I believe there are very few people uh, don't accept that we need to build a children's hospital. Works have commenced. There are still some people at this stage saying we should still change the site to Blanchardtown. I met several of them last week, but I personally don't believe it's an option at this stage. Every, different people have reservations about the exact location, but it is there. I think if we were to even contemplate moving off the site and start the planning process and design process and the judicial mm. process, we wouldn't even have a sod turned in five years' time. So it's not an option to move off the site, in my opinion. And to, to achieve it, uh, should it be done at any cost? Well, it is going to be done. That's the first thing. And okay. unfortunately, the cost is now the issue. Mm. I have really only one issue at this time. I have several issues, but the big issue at this time that I have, and where any hatch you like, including the chairman of the PAC, is we are now told the cost to have that hospital built and opened, you know, with all the ICT and mm. care for the patients that's necessary. Nothing to do with running the cost, <clears throat> the hospital, but the cost is at £1.7 billion. I would like to know... Can we be guaranteed it'll come in around 1.7 billion? You know, it's not going to come in any less. People talk about shaving off bits and pieces of the hospital, but I can guarantee it to be construction costs increased between now and the end of the project. It's gone from 600 million to 1.7, and in the last two years, and they're only they're only starting the work. It's only last week the builder actually went on site to start building the main hospital unit. So there's at least two years to go. So I won't be surprised if we're back here in two years' time and we're not talking about 1.7 billion. I'd hate to think we're talking about well in excess of 2 billion. And my real priority mm. at this stage is to tie down the 1.7 and make that absolutely fixed. That's the big priority now. Mm. I suppose to most of us, their telephone figures, uh, we can't really comprehend the amount yeah. of money involved. Uh, it's a colossal amount of money. Uh, by anyone's uh, standards, uh, but is it absolutely necessary? Is it value for money? No. 
that's not value for money. And um, I'm upfront on that. It's, it's about value for children. And I know you might say that's a funny response, but if you're looking for value for money, it doesn't meet any test. Like, uh, you know, it's costing about four million for every single bed. There's nowhere in the world does anything like that. And for people to say this is the best hospital in the world, that's nonsense. It's pipe dream. We all would wish it to be. The only thing that determines whether it's the best hospital in the world will be the quality of the doctors and the nurses and medical and treatment there and that's nothing got to do with building costs so people who'd say that you know their pipe dream stuff i hope it is but um it won't be value for money but people will say you know looking after children is priceless so i'm of that view myself we just have to do it for the next generation and two and three generations of children but uh, we need the 1.7 million to be nailed down at this stage. Okay, but why is it so much if it's not value for money? And that is uh, the obvious question. Uh, Minister Harris is obviously in the spotlight uh, because of those questions and what he knew and when he became aware of costs overrunning. Uh, but there are other people involved, and you've been trying to get answers of two civil servants in particular. Tell us who Robert Watt is and who Paul Quinn is and what questions you want to ask of them. Okay, Robert Watt is the Secretary General of the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform, one of the most senior civil servants in the country. He's not the guy who writes the cheque for this. That's the Secretary General of the Department of Health. But Robert Watt would have a a role and his department in overseeing and giving approval and making sure the procedures are in place across all government departments in relation to capital projects. And we want to see the role of that department because there's no use something goes wrong in health blame the secretary general or the minister for health we're now heading into a major rural broadband contract which is billions before we even start you know you can't just blame that department there has to be some government overall government control here and he is the secretary general of the department of public expenditure and reform and he has to give assurances that at governmental level they have controls in across all departments and i'm not don't believe that's really the case at the moment. They send circulars to every department and then if it goes wrong they blame the department but that's not good enough. Okay and he has declined to appear before? Oh oh no he hasn't. He declined to come into the health committee because he says he's not responsible for health but the public accounts committee agreed last Thursday to invite him in. It won't be this week but we have agreed to invite him in and I would expect he will come in and it won't be on, it's not specifically Mm. on the children's hospital. It'll cover all government major capital projects whether it's rail line extensions or whether it's broadband whether it's children's hospital but um, I think the children's hospital will be an example of what's going wrong and that would be par for the course that he would be accountable to your committee he is accountable to our committee so that's why I do expect he will come into the public accounts committee and what about Paul Quinn well Paul Quinn my main beef if you call it Mm. that Paul Quinn is under or beside the Department of Public Expenditure, they have the National Procurement Office, which advises every single government department and agency, right down to the schools in your consti- every constituency, who they should buy their major supplies from, who they should buy the copying from, you know, the cost of everything got to do with running a school. So they have contracts, pro forma contracts that every state body is meant to follow. But they gave a derogation to this hospital not to follow those contracts because the unique nature of this particular National Children's Hospital. So big, the existing contracts didn't kind of cover that type of thing. And he's the chairman, or he's a boss of that organisation, and we asked him, why did you do that? And he wrote back and explained what I've just said. But he never told us. He himself, personally, the guy who wrote a letter to us, is a director of the National Paediatric Development Board, 
the the and he's one of the directors of that company that's overseeing this cost overrun. So he was wearing two hats. He had a conflict of interest. I've no problem people having two different roles, but he should have told people so people would know. He probably wasn't a neutral person to even ask that question to. And he, it would have been far more helpful had he told the Public Accounts Committee that he was involved in both sides of that debate when they sat down at meetings, you know, private meetings to agree this. All right. And uh, these are some of the individuals that make up the layers of oversight for a project uh, that is not value for money, which is to be the most expensive hospital in the world. uh, And indeed, uh, at a a cost of two billion euro beyond the comprehension of most people, even those who are very familiar with these type of projects. I'll just give you one figure that the public will understand. Mm. There, There are going to be 380 beds in this hospital for children. Each one of them will have their own room. There's no going to be no ward with two, three or four children in the one ward for infection control and things like that. But every single, for the 380 beds, the average cost of this project is 3.8 million euro. So people can understand that's okay. beyond contemplation, yeah. but that's actually the figure. Yeah, and uh, that puts it into context. But at, at the top layer of all of this, obviously, is uh, the frontline minister, and that is Simon Harris. Uh, he became uh, aware last August uh, that there was the potential that this would run over by hundreds of millions of euro. Uh, the suggestion is uh, that he misled the doll, he misled Fianna Fáil, he misled the people of Ireland. Uh, it seems as though there's to be an apology of sorts tomorrow. What are you expecting from? the Minister. Yeah, I expect the minute um, this issue came to light in recent weeks, when we look back at the parliamentary question my colleague uh, Barry Cowan put to the Minister last September, uh, now in hindsight we knew what he was told wasn't a full and fair and true full answer to what the question was on the Dáil record. He asked was the project under budget and he was told it was. Any decent Minister should have said um, um, we're concerned about escalating costs and we're examining the matter and we'll make a further statement. Mm. So people would have been aware because we supported excuse me, the last budget on the basis of the information we were given. We even supported a supplementary estimate for the Department of Health last December without being told the full picture. And that wasn't fair. And it wasn't fair to the public, not just to Fianna Fáil. It wasn't fair to the Dáil. The Minister should have been more upfront and said, yeah, there is issues. I'm working on it. And when I have information, I'll come back. So what do you expect from the Minister tomorrow? I expect he'll say, in hindsight, he should have corrected the Dáil record or he should have been more fulsome in his original answer. He will give that now. He'll say what he said was, cor- was correct, um, but it wasn't the full story. And he will now come with a full position and say that uh, he will be monitoring it and he'll posi- you know, there'll mm. be changes in the board and he's going to have new procedures. You know, mm. there'll, there'll be do, do, you, do you believe, though, that he misled the Dáil? Pardon? Do you believe that Simon Harris misled the Dáil? He didn't tell the doll the full truth. That's how... Okay, they're so, my words. He didn't tell the doll. Okay, so you're not expecting him to say that he misled the doll? Well, he's going, I expect he'll say it would have been more helpful had he given mm. more information. And not, maybe I'm being too soft on the minister. And is that the get-out-of-jail card for the minister? No. Um, it's the get-out-of-jail card in relation to the flow of information. But that doesn't do anything to correct the cost overrun. There's two different issues. You and I have just talked about yes. the costs. Mm. doesn't solve... 
he's, he can apologise all his like, and that won't change where we are. But the, 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 the flow of information or the lack of information that was transferred to the government and to your party shows a level of incompetence, does it not? Because in the knowledge that this project was going to run over by hundreds of millions of euro, the minister sat on his hands and said nothing and allowed the budget to be agreed, drafted and announced and allowed the confidence and supply agreement to be extended. Yeah, and all of that is based on truth and, you know, proper exchange of information. And regularly, if an issue is coming up, because the government mm. does rely um, on, on Fianna Fáil not voting it down in the doll, um, they would often, the day before an issue would come up and maybe is coming to Cabinet of the morning, at least in simple English, give Fianna Fáil a heads up, because otherwise they, they need us not to pull down the government and have to be probably more honest and open and truthful with an opposition that our government has ever had to be in the past. And that has not been the case. So how can Fianna Fáil continue to have confidence in Simon Harris as the Minister for Health? Well, I think we're fairly clear and then we're getting to the crunch of it. I genuinely don't think the listeners in now to me are so close to the border want us to have no government in place when Theresa May is doing... Well, that wasn't the case when Fianna Fáil had serious questions to ask about Francis Fitzgerald, who removed herself from office, and likewise with Dennis Nocton. There was no need for a general election. Absolutely, and what was interesting in both of those cases is the government itself did the right thing and one of their own um, stepped out of government. Fianna Fáil in either case put pressure on but didn't put down a vote against the minister in the dawn. The day Fianna Fáil does that you know you're putting up the posters for an election if posters are okay. going to in the next election and we shouldn't do that between now and the end. And of do time. you expect the government to do the right thing? Do you expect Simon Harris to continue in his role as Minister for Health? I, listening to Leo Varadkar he is going to continue in his role and that does mean when the election does come the public will have the decision um, to make as to whether this is a competent government or not and I think we're heading into t- situation that the public will be losing some confidence in the confidence mm. of this government. And the public will look at Fianna Fáil and say Fianna Fáil decided knowingly to support an incompetent government. Yeah, that, that, that's, I'm saying that, that point of view holds until the 29th of March, in my view. Um, we have to have a government in place. Uh, we couldn't have no government in place. The EU could be coming to us, other European parliaments have to deal with Brexit, and we can't turn around, and because and, Ireland is the meeting, the sandwich in the Brexit debate, and we can't say, well, we're out of here because we want to go canvassing for a few weeks. That You couldn't do that between now and the end of March. We, we could have a different conversation, I think, after that, but not before that. Fianna Fáil TD for Leash, Sean Fleming is... Uh, the chairperson of uh, the Oireachtas Public Accounts Committee. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, as you may have heard, planning permission uh, for the North-South Interconnector has been quashed in a High Court decision in Belfast. Let's talk uh, about this and what possible consequences it will have for the proposed project with uh, Parik O'Reilly, who's spokesperson for NEPPC, that's the North East Pylon Pressure Campaign, which opposes this project and has been doing so for about 12 years at this stage. Good morning to you, Parik, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, why has the planning permission been quashed in Northern Ireland? Hey, good morning, Michael. Just to say, we, we, we've never opposed the project. We, we, we've always wanted it underground. And I of think course. it's an important difference because a lot of the arguments that are used against us are saying that we're, we're against progress and renewables, etc. We, we've always said... OK, but you're know. opposed to the project as proposed, which is overground. Overground, yeah. yeah but yeah. As, as a project going yeah. ahead underground, we, we would give it 100% support, and that continues to be the case. So in, in Northern Ireland, um, what has happened is... is um, 
the uh, Department of Infrastructure uh, have had to uh, withdraw uh, the planning application for the north for for a whole number of reasons. But mm. the main one was that normally that planning application required ministerial approval in the north. There was no assembly sitting for the last number of years, and a senior civil servant made a decision that they, that he or, or the department would give approval for it, and that has been challenged in relation to to the the north south connector and an incinerator. And basically now that planning application is withdrawn and it's back to the drawing board for Airgrid or Sony in Northern Ireland in terms of a new planning application. Right. It's almost accidental uh, and certainly not what would have been intended. The planning permission was sought and approved uh, but signed in by a civil servant and uh, it was thought that that case against the incinerator wouldn't have had any impact or at least that was the claim or the hope or whatever the case may be uh, but that ruling saw that it was in effect uh, inappropriate for a permanent secretary to sign into law planning permission like that uh, and I, I gather that the, the officials looked at that and thought well if the argument stood up in terms of opposing the waste incinerator it's going to stand up in terms of opposing the north-south interconnector. Correct, Michael. That's it in, in a nutshell, that uh, the incinerator would be the same level of infrastructure, in other words, st- strategic infrastructure mm. that required a high cost uh, to build and also was very important in terms of a public um, uh, perception and, and, and consultation. So on that basis, the view was that the North Southern Connector would would not stand up to... So this legal challenge was pending uh, and uh, it was decided not to fight it? Correct. It, 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 well, well, the, 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 if you take the incinerator case, there was a case taken against the decision by the senior civil servant on the incinerator. Mm. Um, that case was won, uh, so uh, the uh, department had to appeal that. They appealed it. They lost the appeal. Mm. They sent it to London for consideration. London sent it back to Northern Ireland and said, you really need to go through the courts there. Sure, but because that of that... that the department decided to withdraw. Uh, and But that was the, the, the basis uh, that uh, the appeal against permission for the North-South interview connector was being taken and that uh, uh, appeal was pending uh, but because of the incinerator decision it was decided not to fight it. Correct, correct, that's right. So so what does so that mean? That there's no pre- planning permission for the north-south interconnector north of the border now so that's a, a southern uh, line of electricity which is connecting with nothing. Correct, Michael. So there's two readings on it. I mean, the immediate response from Airgrid was that, you know, this is not a major deal and that they will resubmit quite soon and and redetermine the application. Uh, But from our standpoint, uh, there's a whole lot of things that bring it back to the drawing board because bear in mind in the south, uh, Airgrid withdrew the application in 2010 and then they resubmitted in 2015. But in the north, they never actually withdrew the original application, even though it was sent back for review on a number of occasions. So it's a very old application. It goes back to 2009. Mm. And a whole lot of things have happened since then, uh, even changes along the route with farmers, etc. So in our view, that has to really go back to basics and start again. Okay, it's a different body that would uh, apply north of the border, isn't it, Sony? Well, Sony is owned 100% by Airgrid. Yes, but but it would be Sony who uh, would make uh, the application if it was decided to reapply. If they did that uh, in this political vacuum, uh, whilst uh, there is no uh, assembly or executive in Northern Ireland, uh, would that stand up? 
Well, firstly, to reapply, we, we believe, will take a long, long time because it's a bit like down here when uh, when they withdrew in 2010, Airgrid, they said they would be back in within a number of months mm. and, as we all know, it took five years because the application has to be updated with all the things that have happened since. If they do apply in the north, uh, then there has been a new ruling where potentially a senior civil servant could sign off on it. Right. But it's only for certain types of projects and I, we believe this one would not fit into that. That. If it's a strategic infrastructure and a high cost, then we still, our understanding is the minister would need to sign off. Mm. But the other point, Michael, that you make is, is critical. There's now no planning in the north. Uh, so from our standpoint, uh, we're saying it and asking the government that nothing really should happen down here uh, and have a line being progressed and procurement being looked at and money continue being spent on a project that uh, has no approval for the final segment uh, because it's of absolutely no value if it can only uh, be approved in the south. Airgrid has said they're going to continue as normal but you cannot continue as normal when normal has changed completely to a different situation. Mm. And we're talking about a lot of money, 228 million euro. We're talking about a, a lot of money uh, potentially being spent this year if procurement has been looked at. Uh, we want to know how much money is committed already. Bear in mind, Minister Nocton, the previous minister, jumped the gun totally and he signed off on procurement in September 2017 for the South and Northern Ireland, even before planning was allowed in the North, which was totally irresponsible. So now we're saying to the current minister, you need to to hold things off here until you at least have, have planning approvals in both jurisdictions. But we bought the pylons, have we? No, we haven't bought the pylons, is our understanding. Again, this is shaded in. There's been no straight answers uh, from the minister in in the doll. But our understanding is that the pylons have not been bought. There's been procurement on the design of the pylons and things maybe are ready for for signing, for ticking the box and and going ahead. But it hasn't happened yet. And that should not happen. The other thing, Michael, really, and and the critical thing here in terms of our point is... You know, we the things we've been saying for the last few years have come through in terms of cost now being equal with overhead and underground and in terms of the need for the north being nothing as critical as people have saying. So we're saying let's have a bit of common sense here. Let's stand back. This this uh, this mm. thing in the north is an opportunity for everybody to stand back and say how can we do this properly and let's take all the information to, today's information into account and look at undergrounding as a realistic option. Is it possible? Is it not too late? I mean, based on what you were saying there, it sounds as though there would be a breach of contract if we were to decide now not to buy the uh, pylons uh, that uh, have uh, been uh, designed at this stage. Uh, Are we not uh, already tied in? No, my understanding is we're not tied in and and to be quite honest, there would be a breach on the government's part if they had signed up to to a contract at this stage because there are a whole lot of legal hurdles that have to be crossed in terms of infrastructure agreements and there's no way there can be a sign-up done already at this stage in the process and it's one of the arguments we're having with Airgrid directly on are they following the process properly and are the conditions uh, being being complied with. So it's definitely not too late and as we said all along, if they really want to build this, the undergrounding will still be the quickest because mm. we're basically back to square one now. It's a fresh start. They have costs on undergrounding. They have uh, much more clarity on on the technology 10 years on somebody needs to cop on here and see a bit of common sense you know and not uh, not be arrogant or too proud to look at it and change the way the technology should be used Alright where does Brexit come into all of this? 
Well, the interesting thing with Northern Ireland, Michael, is that because of Brexit, uh, if it does happen, which is very likely, it means that this project is no longer an EU priority project. It was put on a list called the PCI, the Projects of Common Interest. It's uh, it's a list that requires um, uh, two countries within the EU for it to to be valid. Now, with it gone in the north, um, that whole thing has to be reviewed as to whether it remains even uh, a project of priority within north and south southern ireland so everything is changing um, and the withdrawal is very very significant in the north and and people need to be honest about that and stand back and look at it afresh so there's a risk to the european status because northern ireland might leave the european union Uh, planning permission uh, doesn't exist in northern ireland what's the situation uh, the south of the border so the situation south of the border is um, Airgrid are saying um, that they're moving ahead. Uh, they've moved the date out from 2020 to 2023 as to when it will be constructed. They're saying that they will start construction towards the end of this year or early 2020. But in order to do that, they have to comply with nine very specific conditions that were carried with the planning application. In our view, um, uh, and we've put a complaint into the, the, the regulatory authority, um, ESB have stepped in um, and are not in compliance with stepping in and talking to the planning officials in Mead, Cavan and Monaghan about these conditions. Uh, it is Airgrid's duty to, um, to make sure these conditions are complied with. And we have the disgraceful situation now where uh, this whole aspect of access onto landowners' property uh, is still not uh, verified or clarified. And to this day, not one landowner knows knows wh- where and when and how Airgrid tend, uh, intend to get onto their land. And, or um, if ESB can get onto their land on Airgrid's behalf. ESB is only a contractor and they cannot get on anybody's that is, that, land until Airgrid yeah. uh, submit but that's the, the argument, access route, Michael. That's the argument though, isn't it? It, 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 yeah, the, the argument is, uh, uh, and it's very clear, e- ESB mm. have no powers to go on the land until Airgrid get approval for the access routes. And e- Airgrid have not submitted a single access route to either a landowner or the local authorities. And, and in our view, they're stuck on that point. And uh, there's been no, they keep, keep saying they're, they're, they're not, but since December 2016, they've na- made no progress on this. So uh, why have they not submitted the access routes? Uh, why are the landowners not aware of these access routes? And um, until something happens there uh, with the local authorities, Airgrid cannot move forward onto the land and ESP definitely cannot. All right. Well, we hope to hear from Ergrid in uh, the next couple of days, but we'll leave it there for the moment. And thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Paul O'Reilly, spokesperson for the North East Pylon Pressure Campaign Group. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. The law should be changed uh, to make it easier for people to complain about uh, noisy, unruly neighbours. Uh, anti-social behaviour happening in your neighbourhood, according to Fianna Fáil. Its spokesperson on national drug policy and urban affairs is John Curran, who joins us now. And a very good morning to you, and thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning. If you ha- good morning. Good morning to you. If you have a complaint about your neighbours, it's the RTB, the Residential Tenancies Board, you take yeah, it to at the moment. Correct. I suppose to put this in context, Michael, the first thing is, 
this doesn't refer to our property. This refers to uh, private rented accommodation. And you're correct. If you are having an issue with neighbours with regards to antisocial behaviour, um, most people don't know who the landlord is. And even if they do, the procedure is that you make the complaint through the RTB. And depending on the nature of the complaint, how serious it is, um, a, resolution, a resolution is sought. But it involves the landlord addressing it directly with the tenant. That's the relationship, the landlord and tenant. But my experience has been that many people do not want to make the complaint to the RTB because they don't want their identity disclosed. They might be, I suppose, at one end, they don't want to have bad blood with their neighbour. But in many instances, they're actually afraid to make the uh, complaint. They might be elderly, they might be living on their own, they're afraid of maybe being harassed or intimidated. So they don't make the complaint. And the way the legislation is at the moment, it is only the person who is directly affected themselves that can make a complaint. And I'm proposing that that be amended to allow a third party act on their behalf. And if, for example, I was to make a complaint against you to the RTB, would you know that it was me who made the complaint? The way it is at the moment, that's the problem, Michael. We would know it was you. Um, your identity is disclosed. And what the change I would like to see made is that the complaint could be made in such a manner as the affected person, their identity doesn't have to be disclosed. Because oftentimes, you know, when somebody's engaged in antisocial behaviour, more than one house, like if you're living in a housing estate, if you're living in a block of apartments, the likelihood is that it's affecting more than one person. Uh, so if a third party could make the complaint, the identity of the affected person isn't made known. They feel more comfortable. They don't feel that they can be intimidated and harassed. And certainly I've come across a good number of cases where people have simply refused to go to the RTB because they're intimidated by the people who are engaging in the antisocial behaviour. So they continue to live with it and feel that they have no option but to do otherwise. Uh, But antisocial behaviour covers a a broad spectrum of things. Uh, What is taken or is there a definition or some sort of criteria as to what the RTB decides will be grounds for taking a complaint? No, it isn't specified what antisocial behaviour is um, because, as you rightly say, Michael, there is a range. Uh, I suppose at the lesser end, you might have issues, you know, with loud music and noisy neighbours, but it goes way beyond that. Uh, Certainly, I have cases uh, where people are afraid to make the complaint because they believe the neighbours are involved in maybe drug dealing and the likes, uh, and they're just too intimidated. There are people coming and going to the uh, house or apartment at all hours of the day and night. Uh, so that puts a lot of fear in people. So there's a range of issues that falls into that category of antisocial behaviour. And in the first instance, the re- direct responsibility is for the landlord to engage with the tenant. But as I say at the moment, the identity of the complainant is made public, and that frightens a lot of people. They don't want their identity to be made known. And if that is uh, the case uh, where they're afraid uh, of taking a complaint effectively, they become prisoners in their own home. They do. And oftentimes, you know, some some people would say to me, well, anybody could make a spurious complaint. But the, the reality is, oftentimes, the Gardaí are well aware of these uh, issues because what will frequently happen is uh, there might be an incident, late night, noise, banging, shouting, roaring, all of this type of thing. Mm. And people will ring the Gardaí. The Gardaí will arrive and say, we've had a complaint, but they don't say who the complaint comes from. Now, those issues and incidents are logged with the Gardaí. Uh, so it is quite possible to check afterwards if, you know, there has been a disturbance, if there has been antisocial behaviour. The real issue is that people won't take that step to go to the RTB uh, because 
they, they're just living in fear and intimidation. Is it possible, though, for the RTB to take action without witness uh, testimony to this? Uh, I mean, it's a little bit like taking complaints uh, to the guards and they will quite often respond uh, that we need you to uh, appear in court to testify against the person you're complaining about uh, in order to take a, a successful prosecution. No, in this case, um, the RTB don't initiate without a complaint being made. And the only person who can make the complaint is the person who's directly affected themselves. Uh, the, the other side of the coin certainly is that in many issues and many cases, my experience is that the Gardaí are aware of the incidents because mm. the incident has occurred. They might have been called to the property to quieten the, the situation that has got out of hand. So in many cases, you would have the supporting evidence from the Gardaí. But the, first, the relationship is between the landlord and tenant. It's the responsibility of the RTB to make sure they engage and deal with the matter as appropriate. But in many cases, the initial complaint isn't being made because people are afraid. Yeah, but if it's word against word, how can the RTB adjudicate uh, based on somebody based on somebody else saying, "Well, I I come down on the side of the person who's complaining rather than the person who's denying it happening"? Because in many cases there is supporting evidence. In other mm. words, uh, the first port of call would be to talk to the guardie. Have they incidents of such behaviour? Um, and I accept you have to have some level mm. of evidence. It can't be just a spurious complaint on behalf. But in many cases. The guards have already been called to the property. They would be quite willing and quite prepared and able to say, we were at such and such a place on dates X, Y and Z. Yes, there was noise. Yes, there was. There were issues. Um, that type of information is available to the guardie and would be used in the current setup as well. OK, uh, well, you've made uh, this proposal. What has uh, been the minister's response? Um the minister is looking at it. He hasn't committed to doing it. Um, my own party, uh, when I raised it at the parliamentary party, were supportive of it. Um, and we, we would hope there's legislation going through the doll at the moment, which would accommodate uh, an amendment to, in other words, it doesn't have to be a brand new piece of uh, legislation, an amendment to the existing residential tenancies bill. Um, and I will continue talking to the minister. He hasn't ruled it out. So I'm, I'm looking uh, for a positive outcome over the coming weeks. All right. Well, no doubt it is a a very real problem for a lot of people. Uh, I'm sure in time we'll uh, realise whether uh, this is a a solution or not. But thank you indeed uh, for joining us here this morning. Finnefall TD for Dublin Midwest. John Curran is his party's spokesperson on national drugs policy and urban affairs and brings our programme to its conclusion today. Our time has run out on us once again. Before we go, remember, as always, uh, there'll be a podcast of today's programme available on our website, lmfm.ie, this afternoon. Thanks to Marie Kearns for producing, Maggie McGuire for researching and Chris Murray in the control tower. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.